So welcome to the Medio Podcast. My name is Josh Harrigan, and I am a combined fellow in pediatric infectious disease and clinical informatics in Boston. And I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Jason Newland. Thanks, Josh. I'm glad to be here. I'm super excited uh, for this episode as uh, we got one of uh, my adult infectious diseases colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis, Dr. Andre Speck. Welcome, Andre. Please do a better job of introducing yourselves than I've done. I just know you as my uh, partner in arms during COVID-19 and also as our uh, anti-fungal or fungus guru um, that I get to go to if I need help. Thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Andre Speck. I'm an adult ID doc um, at Washington University Infectious Disease. I'm, uh, I specialize in fungal diseases and, and transplant uh, patients. Uh, my, <clears throat> I'm also the uh, lead author of the, one of the newer uh, infectious disease books, the Comprehensive Review of Infectious Disease. And um, I am an active trialist, mostly focusing on, inf on fungal infections. Yeah, and you guys should go look at it, get his book. His book has a lot of great stuff. His co-editor, Jerome Escoda, um, also an outstanding adult ID doctor. And nothing against you, Andre, but all of us have decided if we have something funky going on with us, we're going to Jerome. Yeah, Jerome has been the perennial. Uh, I've known him my intern year, and he's been just an absolute genius. Uh, he has uh, always been that person who could pull out the rare disease, uh, like, you know, Schoenberg syndrome, just randomly pulled out of unrounds kind of guy. So we, we've, we've always been lucky to have him. Well, it's great to have you with us, Andre. So today we are going to talk about the uh, recent remdesivir trial that came out in New England Journal uh, this past week. Um, comparing five day versus 10 days of treatment. Um, so this was a, a randomized open label phase three trial uh, involving hospitalized patients with confirmed uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, and they had to have oxygen saturations of 94% or less on room air or radiologic evidence of pneumonia. And there was one-to-one -one random uh, assignment uh, to either receive five days or 10 days of intravenous remdesivir. And so um, just with that brief brief introduction, I'd just like to see what, what your guys' thoughts are. When you read this study, what jumped out at you first? Um, so my initial thought of, of this study was that they had a bit of an issue with the randomization in the sense that they didn't really end up uh, with true, well-randomized well groups. And that it appeared that the ten-day study, ten-day group, was sicker. Now, with that said, if you once you kind of adjust for that and look through further, you really, I really struggled to find any difference between those two, and that makes this a very important study because once you, if you, if the outcomes look um, good between those two, then that actually allows us in a to use a shortened. Uh, course and would allow us to be able to use a uh, to treat many more patients than we would have been able to treat otherwise. So, Andre, when you were when you were reading this and and you saw that, I, I tried to go look through this a little bit because you, you're right that that is one thing that uh, was really I thought very interesting the fact that randomization seemed to have failed. 
I'm a little bit puzzled as to why they didn't um, do block randomization based upon their baseline status. Yeah. I mean, that that's a really great question, you know, because the there is stratification. There was stratification in the in the NIAID trial. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the fact is it just it didn't happen. <laughs> and I think that a lot of these trials that were happening early were designed less with the idea of how do we get the best possible trial to answer the question and more focused on we think this is a drug that has a very high therapeutic index, unlikely to cause very significant side effects, and has a pretty significant uh, chance of success. So therefore, let's try to get it to as many patients as you can. And you see that same approach in the Lancet trial um, that was that was done in China that was that never finished enrollment because that was two to three randomization two to one sorry randomization against placebo and that is largely focused on the idea of getting as many people to get the drugs as you want and you know knowing as you know yourself technically they lower their power by doing a two to three randomization in favor of the drug because you would expect less events in the drug group. So therefore, you would want actually randomization slightly to favor placebo in order to get the most effective study possible. Hey, Andre, I want to get your opinion on the endpoints and the use of these ordinal scales. Just with your being a trialist, I find the ordinal scales, I, I, I actually kind of like them, but I do find that we have this, this seven-point ordinal scale for this trial but, you know, obviously the, the trial that led to the emergency use authorization, I think, had like an eight-point ordinal scale that was somewhat different, flipped on its head on at least in regards to what was one and what was eight or whatever the last number was. So mm-hmm. what do you feel? I mean, what's your, what, what do you think about these sorts of ordinal endpoints? Is this, is this what we're going to see going forward um, with more trials? I think the, these ordinal scales are much more common in the respiratory viral trials. I think that they were kind of originally used in oseltamivir groups in some of your trials uh, as well. But if you really look at their primary outcome, it's actually, it's this. they discuss it as this ordinal variable, but it's not really an ordinal variable. Because my biggest issue with ordinal variables is that the jump from three to four is not the same as a jump from four to five or one to two. And there's a huge difference of what that means, but often statistically, the way they work is the same. And so that's, that's a really big problem. But if you actually look at it, their primary outcome was um, the time to reaching the ordinal variables 1, 2, and 3. And if you look at 1, 2, and 3, 1 is uh, home without oxygen, 2 is home with oxygen, essentially, and three is still in the hospital, but only in the hospital for the purposes of infection control, not for the purposes of actually ongoing medical care or need for oxygen. So really what we have here, if you kind of conceptualize it as the way we treat COVID now, which again was dramatically different from the way we treated COVID back in February when this trial was written and in March 22nd when the, when the variables were redefined, is you have a time to discharge trial. So that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a time-to-discharge trial. And what that's saying is that if you give remdesivir to folks, they get discharged sooner. May not happen in the ventilated patients, 
But then again, it was only 29-day follow-up. And those of us who have taken care of COVID patients know that sometimes these folks hang around for a couple of months. So that may still be faster. They just only follow them for 29 days. Now, this trial, though, this 5 versus 10, number one was now death, two is hospital. I mean, they just essentially flipped it on end. In the end, they're, they're different. And, and I don't know what to make of it. I think that you have to be really careful of ordinal variables, like I said earlier. Sorry. Uh, but... I'm not, I'm not too terribly concerned about it because what, what it's really trying to look at is there, is there a difference between five and ten, and I think that's where we, where what we really need to know in this case is for yep. most folks, um, do we see are we going to do harm to people by extending our doses of this what's going to become us what what I already think is a precious resource and what I think as the data from the the NIAID trial comes out more is going to be believed by more people to be a precious resource. Um, and I think that <clears throat> the answer for the most part is no. I think we can just go ahead and, and, and go with five-day treatment. Yeah, I, I think we were all glad to see that the five-day was going to play out, the, as played out the way it has, just based on some of the you know conversations and meetings you and I have been in in regards to this um, precious resource. Um, one... Other question I have for you, Andre, being that you have, I mean, I've taken care of two, right, on a pediatric basis. Like, it's not many. I don't know, Josh, how many you've cared for, you know, been a part of some of the thinking. So, But, Andre, I know it's been hundreds. What do you think is the right timing for remdesivir? As right now, we obviously have some criteria. How are we going to figure that out? What do you see going forward with the timing when you should be getting it? So the question, <clears throat> I, would, I would answer that question with two caveats. One would be the world that we're living in now and then the world of infinite resources, right? Because in, you know, those are intellectually two different thoughts. And I would say in a world of infinite resources, I would give it to everybody. I would give it to every single person who tests positive for COVID or who appears to have a COVID-like illness. And that's because... I, am, I have largely started to think of this as IV oseltamivir. The risk is minimal. Uh, the benefits might be big. Um, but in most people, it probably isn't going to make a dramatic difference. But on a population level, it would. So that's assuming that we have infinite resources, right? Which is, which is not what's going to happen. <clears throat> so then the question becomes, uh, who do we do it for? And for that, the... It, we have to go back again to the NIAID trial, which I think is the one that is most helpful. Um, and that one shows much bigger uh, differentiation on, on patients who are receiving oxygen. And which is probably why the EUA, the emergency use authorization, was written the, the way it was. Now, they're not seeing a huge difference on people who are on high flow or non-invasive, and then really no difference in people who are ventilated on ECMO. And I think the big problem for that is the duration of follow-up. And that's because those folks take a longer time to, to diverge. Um, and so we don't really know if, because it takes a long time to discharge them. And so we don't really know if those, if, if, if they are going to diverge later, but I think the risk is so low with this drug that I would certainly feel comfortable and I would have nothing, you know, because these are the people who might have the most to gain if we were able to kill off the virus. Um, 
Uh, so I would I would basically give it to at this point to hospitalized patients who who meet the criteria for the emergency use authorization. If the emergency use authorization goes away, and we're basically just looking at this as a free market entity, uh, then it would depend on supply. And I would probably in a in a free market situation, I will give it to everybody who was in the hospital who we probably could honestly argue could receive it because even the exclusion criteria that they have in the emergency use authorization are not that big a deal for me, uh, given what I've seen in terms of safety signals from these drugs. Um, and then we may even want to think about a way of giving, delivering it as an outpatient to folks who are, um, uh, especially folks who are high risk. I think it, this this does, I think, uh, an important part, and we I was in a conversation again with you, Andre, recently that I think is important for the listeners to hear is about this, um, the language around uh, GFR. Uh, and I, ne- I want you to provide your take on the GFR kind of exclusion kind of exclusion within this, because I think it, it provides some important points that people need to know about. Yeah, I think the the five versus ten day trial um, they excluded people at, with creatinine clearance of less than fifty, if I remember correctly, um, and then some of the other ones have done it for less than thirty. Uh, a big part of that is the fact that the drug has cyclodextran in it, <clears throat> which is used to solubilize it, and cyclodextran has a lot of theoretical side effects or theoretical concerns and. Those of us who live in the fungal world have, are used to it because it's basically used to solubilize most of our azoles for IV injection. And most of the time, we pretty much use it with impunity. We get a call and we're told like, yeah, it's going to, you know, it's a problem. But if you're, if you're looking at a sick patient who has a appreciable mortality, cyclodextran is the least of your worries. And so I don't worry too much about that. It's possible at some point that it, it may cause some harm, but I don't think it's I don't think the signal for harm is really there. The other exclusion criteria that that, that that's been an issue for some folks is the uh, five times the upper limit of normal for ALT because it seems it seems really that it's true that remdesivir does have a liver signal, but the liver signal is pretty mild, and I'm one of those people who believes that. It, just because you have one liver injury doesn't mean that you're necessarily predisposed to a second liver injury. Uh, so if you have, you know, up five times the upper limit of normal because of COVID, well, a lot of times if you just give the drug that cr- treats the disease that's causing the initial elevation, you'll improve it even though the drug itself can cause liver abnormalities. So a great example for that is, you know, azoles in 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 amphotera- in um, <clears throat> histoplasmosis. Histoplasmosis is used all the time. We give azoles and they get better. It's because we treated the histo that's in the liver. <laughs> right. <laughs> Love it. So, you know, if uh, just to uh, you kind of touched on it a little bit, Andre, but just to pull it out maybe a little bit more. Do you do you think that we need some more safety data if we're Hopefully in the in the future, you know, things are going to continue to look good for this drug and, and we're going to be using it more widely. Yeah, I think we do. Uh, but I don't think that, that that should curtail its use. 
So we have um, now the Lancet trial, which I think had 200 some odd patients, 237 patients. We have the uh, Remdesivir trial from the NIID who has 1,063 patients. We're going to probably going to have the new edition of that trial with the full 1,000 patients analyzed come out pretty soon. And then there is the uh, trial for, for the other NEJM trial with uh, 402 patients who were enrolled. And that, that gets us in the neighborhood of, you know, 16, 1700 patients. And that's actually, a, we only have a pretty good idea as to what the, the common side effects of this drug will be. Could there be some uncommon side effects? And the answer is yes. You know, oseltamivir looked wonderful and turns out it has a suicidality. Uh, in, especially in the pediatric patients signal that kind of comes out later in, in the post-marketing study. But I think we now need a, uh, Gilead needs to make sure that they create a robust phase four study that needs to go into place virtually the day the drug becomes available so that we can see, we can register, you know, five, six, 10,000 patients to it across the, across the world and then we can really see, is there a good, uh, is there, not, not a good, good is the wrong term. Is there a credible uh, safety signal for any kind of a rare event? I like that use of the word credible. That's a great word to use there, right? I mean, because uh, good isn't the right. I completely agree. So, so Andre, I, you know, as we look forward in regards to treatment trials, Remdesivir, right. I mean, it's turned out what we were hoping it would turn out to be. But now I'm hearing about additional, obviously there's other trials ongoing. There's still hydroxychloroquine trials ongoing. Uh, there's, there's remdesivir trials with the addition of immunomodulators in that. What are your think, what's your thinking on these additional trials that are con- currently being done? So I would split those into two groups. I would split those into antiviral trials and then all others. So the antiviral trials at this point need to have a very strong look at their design and really analyze how they're being done because they need to be at this point no longer done as placebo control trials because we do have an antiviral that works. And I think at this point, if we assume that in the next month or so remdesivir becomes commercially available i would say that doing a anti placebo controlled trial in this situation against an antiviral would be unethical then you have the other ones which can all be done as an add-on therapy so you have your monoclonal antibodies that are directed against covid great let's see what happens if you add a monoclonal antibody against uh covid with remdesivir or if they think it won't work well then you have to do it versus remdesivir um or then there's the immunomodulators and i'll be really honest with you i think in many cases there's very few cases do i think that a disease is homogeneous enough in its immune response that a immune modulator will actually significantly affect it on a population level the problem is that the immune we all think about immune system and we talk about immunodeficient and all of those things. And I really hate that term. Um, I would say it's immune dysregulation. 
we know that HIV patients, end-stage AIDS, and, and I hate that term too, but let's just use it for the purposes of, of convenience, have horrible autoimmune diseases like psoriasis. Well, that's because their immune system isn't weak, it's deregulated. Yeah. And this happens in a lot of places. You know, it's the very classic interplay with uh, worsening immunosuppression that happens with CMV and GVHD in patients with transplants. You know, where the GVHD makes the CMV worse, the CMV makes the GVHD worse, and the whole time as they're cycling upon one another, they are <clears throat> driving the immune system for other things down. And so this is such a complex thing that I think it's really hard to do it. And the way I think of it is, I think of the immune system as an orchestra. And then there's two ways you can interfere with the immune system. You can fire a cannon into the orchestra, or you can remove one player from the orchestra. And unless you have an incredibly astute ear, if you have a 200-person ensemble orchestra and you remove one person who doesn't have a solo, you're not going to hear anything. Whereas if you fire a cannon into the orchestra, you're going to cause a bloody mess. So I think in most cases, it is very hard for immunomodulation to make a difference. And so we would need really good immunophenotyping at the very front. And those are usually not available. And when they're available, they're not really available in real time. And so I expect that a lot of the immunomodulatory stuff is going to fail. Yeah, that's interesting. I know we've had the interesting conversations early on in the COVID treatment with the tocilizumab and, and these discussions and, and, and start and, and really quickly saw some negative consequences to that therapy, which uh, I think highlights the fact that doing more and trying to, you know, fix everything um, isn't necessarily the right way. And I, and I absolutely love your orchestra uh, metaphor to, to describe that. Yeah. And going back to um, how future trials uh, for COVID may be designed and how remdesivir may play a part of those, you know, it's, becoming relatively clear that it is not, um, there's not much utility for it in the sickest of the sick patients. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious is, uh, and this is, you know, maybe a really nuanced question, but when designing those trials and trying to come up with therapies for those patients who are, uh, in that category, you know, it does remdesivir, is that a part of the, the trial design? including it as a, a comparator or an add-on therapy? I think you have to allow for remdesivir to be given to everybody at this point in the trial. Um, I think any trial, I will tell you right now, because I'm getting approached about by about three companies a day to do a COVID trial of their pet rock. <laughs> um, and trust me, right now, everybody has a pet rock <laughs> that, that they want to play with and they want to play with it in COVID. And, and they will send me things like, uh, for anti for compounds that are designed for cancer, and those well, it, it kind of has activity against Hep C, and that's another RNA virus. I'm like, sure, and you know, it's it's everybody wants to play with their pet rock, and so and then the same thing happens with the um, on the other side with the immunomodulation. You know, we designed this for psoriasis, but we think it could work based on this like one bar on one paper 
that was published on COVID, um, one bar from one bar graph in, in one paper. And the fact is we have to be really careful on several things. One, yes, it's a pandemic. Yes, it's urgent. Uh, but we still have to stick to the classic tenets of drug development. The first time we have a compound being used for a disease can't be in sick people. It first has to be used in petri dish, then we have to go to animals, then we have to do safety, and then we can start using it in people. And so I think that tenant has to be honored. And then we still have to honor our duty to treat these folks. And if you kind of think about this outside of, you know, you take off your MPH hat, your, your, your trialist hat, and you put on your doctor hat. And largely, I've come, come to think of remdesivir now as like an IV oseltamivir. And so you, we go use that analogy of flu. Would you allow an immunomodulatory trial for flu that even has, let's say it has great idea for it, that would exclude oseltamivir? Mm, I, I don't think I would. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would either. And so why would you? I think, if, I think you just have to specify, you can, if you are concerned about remdesivir's effect, which is probably relatively negligent at that point, because what drives their mortality, their, their mortality is higher, uh, but the effect size of remdesivir is probably smaller. And that's probably happening because most of the reason why these folks are dying is because of their dysfunction and their you know, ARDS and their renal function, all of those things. But you, if you're really concerned that remdesivir is going to screw up your trial, just stratify on it. Yeah, you know, so, such great points. You know, I... Um... Let me, I want to, I just want to talk briefly about this with you, Andre, because you and I were in meetings about the, the allocation process of a limited resource. And, um, I will say when we first got the remdesivir for Barnes Jewish hospital, where Andre works, um, and are one of our other hospitals in our system, you know, having to come up with a, a method to deliver a drug that has well, which we now know has great therapeutic benefit and we have more patients that probably could get it was, was really tough. And I just want to hear your thoughts on having to develop these allocation process for limited resources through this pandemic. So this is, it's hard. Um, having done some work in global health um, makes, makes it more, I wouldn't say easier, but I would say more familiar. Um, because in global health, people acknowledge the impact of cost more often than we acknowledge the impact of cost in the United States. Um, in the United States, we, we live in this bubble where we think that healthcare is, we just do the best that we can for everybody. And we do. The individual physician does do that. However, our system exists in such a way that by spending sometimes millions of dollars, uh, probably billions of dollars at, at the healthcare level on futile care, uh, we often actually create a system in which there is no care available to those who can't pay for it or who just can't reach it through geographic issues or through socioeconomic issues. And so I would be, I would say that, that that hits us on an individual level when we're allocating this. But this, 
existence of, of resource allocation in our healthcare system is actually present there on a, on a daily basis. Um, and it's there happening all the time. And so it, it, it does hit us. And when we feel that moment of true uncomfort of I'm doing something I don't like doing. And if you're a normal human being, a discussion of who should get a limited resource should actually hurt you in your soul. Um, we have to remember that feeling and continue to feel it about our healthcare system forever. It's Andre, such this is why I lo- this is why you had to be on this. I, I even think on this podcast, and I and I would say that your comments um, are so important as we reflect on what's happening, you know, in our country on May 31st, um, 2020 and what's going on in many cities, uh, due to the, um, you know, the, the death of, of George Floyd. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of what this is. We have to come up with how this healthcare system will work better, uh, for everyone. And I, and I think, and I hadn't looked at it that way. And I think that's a, a super important way of looking as we move forward. And that's been, I think, one of the most beautiful movements in, in healthcare that is the idea of one health. What we do to animals affects our health. What we do to the planet affects our health. Our socioeconomic, racial, and rural versus urban um, divides affects our health. You know, the fact that we don't give sick days to our frontline workers in restaurants who live on minimum wage is the reason we have one of the worst pandemics. Though everything is yep. interconnected and everything affects health. And this is why it's so important for physicians to not stay in our lane and just talk about healthcare. This is why we have to become activists because that is how we protect our patients' care. And their health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Andre, yeah, anything else you want to say that you had that we didn't get to? Stay home, wash your hands, wear a mask. Please help us help you. Andre, you rock, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you for the compliments and thank you for inviting me. It was a, a lot of fun. <laughs>